Well, if you're just joining us, we're, we're, we're finishing out a series today where we've been talking about emotions. This week I was in the dentist office, and I'll say up front, I don't like the dentist, but I like my dentist. Does that make sense? I mean, I, don't, I think probably every, no one likes the dentist. When I, that appointment comes up, I'm, I kind of dread it because no one wants somebody going and stabbing them in the mouth with sharp instruments. But if I have to do that, my dentist is fantastic. I love him. I, he, he's great. But I'm sitting in the dentist chair, and I'm just getting a cleaning, and, and I'm laid back, and I got the light in my eyes, and, and my dental assistant's a friend of mine. She, uh, they had teenagers that grew up in the youth ministry, so I, that's enjoyable. We talk, catch, catch up about her kids and things like that. But as she's going through, I know, because I go every six months, I know that I've got a place on the right side of my mouth, on the inside, that has, that's just a little bit sensitive. No cavities, again, hooray, but there's this place that's a little bit sensitive, and when she starts you know, scraping plaque, or the thing that's the worst, the little air hose that dries things off, there's a spot that anytime she hits it with that, it hits a nerve and it sends like jolts down through my body. And so we were sitting there talking about it, and I'm laying in the chair, and she's doing my teeth, and I noticed that when she's on the left side of my mouth, everything's fine. But as she moved over to the right side, and what made me realize that I knew we were talking about fear, I realized that I was gripping like tightly the uh, hand the, the armrest as I was laying there. It didn't hurt, but I was afraid that it was coming. You, you, you know that what that's like? And you're like, and, and I realized, and I was just tensed up. And as I was preparing to talk to you and to our students this week about fear, I thought, man, here's a real physical illustration of fear. We laugh because uh, she took my blood pressure and she's, hey, it's really good. In the past, it always hasn't been good. One of the things that she said when she's done the blood pressure is when people go to the dentist, it's typically a little bit higher than normal. Why? Because they're afraid. And so while I'm sitting there and I'm thinking through this, man, I'm living out what I'm about to be talking about. I asked her, I said, hey, has there ever been somebody that comes through here that's like really, really fearful? Who's the person that's most afraid? And she said, well, we have a dad who when he brings his kids, she said he literally walks into the lobby area, drops his kids off, checks them out, and she says he keeps one foot back towards the door, and as soon as his kids are checked in, he's out the door and he's gone. And I started laughing. I said, you're kidding me. I said, what? Does, does he come in, like, for himself? And she goes, yeah, he does. And I said, well, what do you do? And she said, he, it, takes, it takes a while to get him in the chair. He walks and he paces, and we kind of have to talk him, you know, down into it. And she said, sometimes, you know, we give him a little, a little happy pill, kind of calms him down, and then we put gas on them so they can relax. And I'm laughing. I'm like, that's incredible. Now, there's doctor-patient confidentiality, so I don't know who it is, but she goes, you actually know him. He was in the parenting teen class at one point. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, now I got to know, and she can't tell me. And I'm like, I shouldn't even ask. And now I'm like, who would it be? You know, that's, that's that afraid. But fear, fear for a lot of times has a negative connotation to us. The first week, we talked about joy. Everybody loves joy. The next several weeks, we talked about sadness and anger and disgust and fear. And those emotions tend to have a more negative connotation, but they don't have to because they are emotions just like joy that God has given us. And those emotions, while they can be perverted and cause negative connotations, they also have some positive things. Fear does some good things for us. Fear can keep us safe, right? I mean, that, God gave us fear, so it's not a bad thing. Fear can keep us safe. Every September, I have this privilege. I get to go out to Glorieta, New Mexico, and it is a beautiful place if you've ever been out there. 
Uh, mountains right north of Santa Fe. It's 70 degrees all day long. It drops down. You don't even turn air conditioning on in the place we stay. You just open the windows because it drops down to the 50s and just kind of cools off. And every year, it's a, it's a conference for youth ministers at large churches. And, and we go and we sit around and, and really we throw up whatever we want to talk about on the board and we, we hash through it for two days. Well, a couple years ago, we were up there and we had we had some downtime on a Monday or Tuesday afternoon. And so a couple of guys said, hey, do you want to walk down to the horseshoe pit and we'll throw horseshoes? I said, yeah. So we went down there and um, we walked down and where, where it's at, it's by this lakeside that has all kinds of water slides and water inflatables. It's just this cool lake set up for teenagers. But the, during September, the horseshoe pit wasn't really maintained, probably because it was September, summer had been done, and two, I'm sure with that lakefront, teenagers are all there, and they're not playing horseshoes most of the summer. So we go down, and we grab the horseshoes. There's four or five of us down there, and as we're going, we walk through this patch of grass by the horseshoe pit that's about mid-shin high, and something rattles through, not rattles, that's a poor choice of word, something shakes the grass, and we look down, and there's a snake kind of coming in between all of our feet. I said rattle. It wasn't a rattlesnake. But in the moment, it might as well have been an anaconda from the wild. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like, like you should have seen these 40-year-old men with the athletic ability they hadn't had in, in two decades, <laughs> cartwheeling out of the way, ninja flipping to the side. I mean, we're, I mean, 4.3 40-yard dashes away, and we're all, you know, our hearts are racing, and, and we're like, what was that? You know, what was a snake? What kind? And, and now we, we don't know where it went. We just know it's somewhere by the horseshoes, and so, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of looking forward at a distance to see it's gone, because, you know, you don't want to you know, reach down to grab the horseshoe and get bitten. Man, we, we were moving. That, that, we were afraid, and that's a good type of fear. I mean, you want that. You, you, you don't want to be like the little boy that lived next to me several years ago. I mean, we had these great kids, Freddie and Christina. Now, Freddie, Freddie was like five or six years old. It's, it was hard for me to tell because he, he looked like he was nine or 10 or like 11. He was this gigantic kid. His sister was two years older than him, but Freddie was much taller than her. He was going to a future offensive lineman. I mean, he could probably play for the Longhorns this week. I mean, he's a big kid, not like that, just husky. And I'm sitting in my garage one day, and Freddie walks up, and, and he's holding, it's a, it's a garden snake, but he doesn't know, he's holding it by its tail. And it's, you know, moving its head around, and he goes, Mr. Boet, is this snake poisonous? I'm like, well, <laughs> no, it's not, Freddie, but if it was, that's a poor way to ask. You know what I mean? That, that's a kid who had no fear, and fear, the lack of fear put his life in a danger. So fear isn't necessarily a bad thing. And so, in fact, sometimes fear makes us feel alive, like, like adrenaline junkies or somebody that goes skydiving and jumps out of an airplane, a person who goes rock climbing, their heart starts beating faster, their body is, like, is, is, is working at its, at its finest because fear is kind of set in. For those of us who are not adrenaline junkies, but you, you ride a roller coaster, that's kind of the safe way to experience fear, right? You know you're locked in and stuff, but you hit that top and you're like, I probably shouldn't have done this, you know? And then you drop and ah, and it's fun. In, in, a, in a month or so, some of your kids are going to come to you and go, Mom, Dad, can we go to the haunted house? Can we go to Fright Fest? Or can we go to these things? And it's safe. Somebody's not really going to, you know, hurt them. But it's that idea, that fear as you walk into the haunted house and it's dark and somebody's in a mask, get your heart beat, and you feel alive. Fear is not necessarily a bad thing, 
but it can be. Because fear can also keep us from taking risks. Fear can, can cause you in business or at work to, ma- to, to not make a decision that might, might push your business over the top. <laughs> and you wrestle through that because you go, man, if we did this, great things could happen. But we also know there's some, there's some risk, there's some danger, and sometimes fear paralyzes us. And we just accept the status quo because we're afraid. If you've been coming to this class for a while, I hope by now you've begun to understand the biblical imperative for you as a parent to be the primary disciple of your teenager. That's your job. In reality, if you look at the Bible, you go to Deuteronomy 6 or you go to to anything that talks about parenting, Scripture will tell you that you, believe it or not, are the youth minister of your home. David and I and our small group ministers down the hallway, we come in an auxiliary uh, function. We're just to the side to help you, to encourage you to do some things that you can't as you provide for your family, to create some experiences for teenagers on a group setting that you can't do as a parent. But we are secondary disciples, your primary disciples. And some of you have wrestled with that because you're afraid. You're afraid Let's just call it what it is. You're afraid that if you lean in and start talking spiritual things with your teenager, it might be exposed that your teenager's further down their journey with Jesus than you are. I mean, that's a scary thing. As, as the parent who's supposed to be in charge, you don't want your teenager to discover that they actually know more about the Bible than you do. And, and, and it's fear. Or you're afraid that they're going to ask you a question, a deep theological question, Mom, Dad, here's what I've struggled with. If God is all-powerful, can he, can he make a rock so big that even he can't pick it up? And you go, uh, I don't know. Go ask Brett. And they're going to come ask me. And I'm going to go, I'm the secondary disciple. I don't know. Go ask your parents. <laughs> and you don't want that to happen, and I don't want that to happen. I can't answer that question. It's a philosophical question that we'd have to, we could answer, but it's, you're going to get off into all kinds of philosophy and things like that. And so there's fear and it paralyzes. So instead of engaging and being the primary discipler, we step back and we go, you know what? I'll just drop my kids off and I'll just pray that God does a work while they're there. For some of us, for some of us, it's sharing our story. We're we're afraid to do it. We're afraid that if we go up and, and start talking about Jesus to somebody, they might ask us a question that we can't answer. They might, it might change the relationship at work. We might be viewed as, as the Bible thumper, the Jesus lover, instead of the cool guy who can talk football and sports and things like that. The cool mom that all the other teenagers love, all of a sudden now, oh, she's the crazy Baptist. And just don't tell them you go to a Baptist church and you'll do much better. You know, I mean, just be a Christian. And when we're afraid of what's going to happen. I mean, 20 plus years of youth ministry. I'll tell you this, and I'm not telling you this because one's coming up. It just, it grieves me. We have parents that refuse to let their children experience God on a mission trip because they're afraid. Could something go bad on a mission trip out of the country? Yeah. Could your child be hit by a car when they left here going home? Yeah. Fact, that's probably more likely. 
because they don't have a group of adults walking with them, planning and figuring out how to get from the parking lot home like they would on a mission trip. But we have this fear that gets inside of our head that goes, if my child leaves the country to go someplace for the gospel, something bad could happen. And so we go, no, forget it. And they spend their spring break maybe doing something great. Maybe they go skiing. Maybe they hang out and rest. And that's not all bad things, but they miss an experience that God might have been calling them to because we're afraid. So fear, fear can cause us to miss out on things. Fear can also cause us to, to distrust God. See, here's how spiritual growth works. And, and we're going to get into Scripture in a second. Let me say, here's how spiritual growth works. God calls you to do something. It doesn't have to be something big. It can be something small. God calls you to do something, and we have a choice to be obedient or not. When we choose to be obedient in what God calls us to do, we grow spiritually. Very simple process. God calls, we do, we grow. God calls, we don't, we stay stagnant. We don't grow, or we go backwards. Well, because of that, Satan, who is alive, and we're in the middle of a spiritual battle right now while we're even talking here, Satan doesn't want you to grow. He doesn't want you to become more like Jesus. And so he uses things like fear to cause you to distrust God so that you won't grow. Let me give you a couple examples. For adults, take the biblical imperative, the command, to tithe on your income. I'm not a pastor. I don't deal with budgets. So... Let me say this. When I'm talking to you about this, I'm talking to you for your spiritual well-being, not for mine. When God calls you to tithe, the simple act of taking 10% of what is his already and giving it back to him, that causes you to grow. But Satan begins to whisper into your ear and he starts saying, you know what, your family can't afford that. You can't live on a budget that's 90% of what you've been given. You can't pay the bills. You can't pay the mortgage if you do that. So you're going to have to do something different. Tithe with your time or something like that. And we aren't obedient. God calls you to share your faith. like We talked about a minute ago. He says, tell your story in his story. Go into all of the earth, Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, the outermost parts of the earth. Tell people about what Jesus has done in your life. And we go, ah, I'm just afraid. And every time we don't, we stop the growth process. God calls you to Sabbath. You don't know what that means. He calls you to take a day off every week. Take a day off to renew yourself, to get spiritually right, to get emotionally right, to get physically right. And, and, and Satan says, if you do that, if you take a day to replenish and do nothing, you're going to get left behind. You're going to miss out. If your kids... If your kids aren't playing in all three of these sports and doing these things that take up all seven days of every week, if your kids take a day off to rest and recover, they're not going to get the scholarships. They're going to be behind everybody else. And if they don't get the scholarships, they're not going to go to the college that they need to go to college. And if they don't get to go to college, they're not going to get a good job. And if they don't get a good job, they're going to be living in your home forever. <laughs> or under a bridge somewhere. And we buy this lie because we're afraid. We're afraid that we won't be able to survive financially. We're afraid that people will look at us differently if we share the story of Jesus. We're afraid that we'll miss out on something if we don't go, 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 go and say yes to everything. And so we say no. And in three things, tithing, evangelism, and Sabbathing, three major principles in the Scripture that the vast majority of believers aren't doing, we find out why the church isn't growing. 
because Satan has whispered lies and we're afraid. And we trust our wrong experiences, actually. And we trust the lies of the devil more than the word of God because he creates fear and it causes us to distrust God. That's why what we're talking about is important. Because you, as an adult, who've been here 40 or 50 years, understand this because you've been living it. Our teenagers down the hallway are figuring it out now, and we've got to help them overcome fear. I want you to look in Psalm chapter 27, verse 1. This week, this is where we're just going to stay. You might read this several times with your teenagers. It might be a pretty cool thing that, that once a day, is, as you're eating a meal together, maybe you get up in the morning that you that you read through just this psalm, Psalm 27.1. David writes it, King David, he writes it most likely before he's a king, and he says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I feel? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? As you read this passage of Scripture, if you're looking at it, you'll notice that the word Lord is in all caps in, the, in most of your translations. That was because the, the original writings refused to write the name of God, Yahweh, because they, they, they had such reverence for, the, for God that when the stories were told, when the songs were written, and, and it was about Yahweh, which was the name that God revealed to Moses as his name, more on that in a moment, the Jews would not write the name of God down, so they wrote Jehovah. And when it was translated so that we would know that, you will see Lord in all caps. That's a signal to us that it's the name of God being used here, as opposed to just Lord when it's in lowercase or just a capital L. And so David, as he's writing this, he's being very personal. He's calling the name of God. Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? He's not, he could have used other words for, for God. He could have used other references. He could have said the, the heavenly father. He could have said the king. He could have said Adonai. He could have said lots of things. But he says, Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I feel? Yahweh is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? And we take that and we go back in history to when God... And Moses have a conversation in a burning bush. Real briefly, to catch you up on history, Moses is out on the backside of the desert and God is about to call him to free the, the, the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And he reveals himself to Moses in a burning bush and he says, hey, you're going to go to Pharaoh and tell him to set my people free. And Moses has this number of excuses. One of his excuses is, what if they ask me who you are? I mean, do I tell him the burning bush? What I, who are you? What do I say? What is your name? And God says, Yahweh. And if you go back to Exodus account, it's translated, I am. The name of God. I am sent you. That's what you tell Pharaoh. The ever-present God, who isn't known as the God who was, and who isn't known as the God who will be, but is known as the God who is today ever-present, the I am. He takes care of the past. He takes care of the present because no matter where you're looking at time, he is, I am, present. He is eternal. And one of the things we pull from this passage and the thing that, that kind of bottom line, I hope you'll go home and talk to your students about is this. What's eternal doesn't fear what's temporary. What's eternal, what lasts forever, what has no end for a disciple of Jesus, a follower, someone who has Jesus in their life, who has heaven for eternity, the temporary here that lasts for a few decades doesn't fear what lasts forever because the temporary passes away. And David says, Yahweh, I am 
the eternal God, the one who was and is and, and who will be, who is with me right now, who created the universe, who will be here when it ends, he is with me and he is my light and he's my salvation and he's my stronghold. I don't have to be afraid of anything because all of this stuff is temporary and I serve the God who is the I am. That's huge. It's huge. David knows it's a scary world. David probably when he's writing this, writing this is running from his life from King Saul. And we'll talk more about that in a second. He's not sitting up in a palace with guards all around him and soldiers and all the money in the world going, yeah, what do I have to be afraid of? He's writing this as a young man running for his life when everybody around would be going, you should be afraid. And it's out of his fear that he makes these, these statements that Yahweh is his light and salvation and his stronghold. So what do we do with that? Well, we're going to we'll dive down a little deeper. But I just want to give you two things to consider. One, You've got to grow so that you know God like David does. You've got to grow spiritually so you have a relationship and an intimate knowledge of God in the way that David does. Because David knows him by name. And then David also tells us, hey, here's what he's like. And he says, God is my light. Before we jump into that, though, let me, let me give you this kind of just picture. And some of you have heard this story before. When I was a freshman in high school. I had a brother who was a sophomore, and I had a brother who was a senior. My brother was a senior, played on the football team, knew all the football guys. He was kind of a, a big deal. I was a little freshman. I was actually younger than everybody else, a year younger than uh, the rest of the freshmen, so I was a little bit more immature. But I walked around with my chest out because I had two older brothers in this small school. We lived in Mannheim, uh, West Germany at the time, a little military base school, not big. And I, I had connections. And one day as a freshman, before I go into art class, I walk into the bathroom that's across from my art class, and there's these two guys that are in my art class, and they were, they were kind of like the, the, the bullies for the freshmen. I don't even remember their names. In my mind, like, their names are Vinny and Luigi because they look like Italian mobsters. Like, that's how I remember them. They did, like, you know. And I walk into the bathroom, and they're, like, kind of both come up. They're both bigger than me. I'm a small guy. And I don't remember all what happened. I just remember they were trying to intimidate me, and I had, I had a... I had a mouth. I could, you know, talk some trash. And, you know, they, I talked a little bit trash back. And, and they threatened to, like, you know, why don't we just beat you up right here? And I remember saying, if you want to mess with my brother, go ahead. And I remember the fear that came on me when they said to me, your brother's the one that told us to rough you up. <laughs> and I did. Get beaten up, not bad, but in the bathroom. Got punched in the stomach, got shoved around. I leave, I go into the art room, and I'm now like, they're in the art class, and like, you know, my eyes are watered up. I'm 13 at the time. These guys are probably 16. And I remember walking in like, you know, I, I don't have anybody that has in the back, and I go and sit down at the table, and, I, and I, you'll never forget, this is a freshman in high school, Jason Dennison, I remember his name. I don't remember Vinny and Luigi's names. Jason sees the, my eyes watering, he's like, hey, what's wrong? Jason was a bigger guy, older guy, popular guy. And I told him what happened. And I remember he got up and walked over to that table. And I didn't hear what happened, but I saw the look in their eyes that I had in the bathroom. And he came and sat back down and said, hey, you don't have to worry about it ever again. And my chest bowed up once again. <laughs> right, Vinny? Come on over here. Bring Luigi with you. 
That's what David's saying here. What, I have, what am I afraid of? I have Yahweh standing between me and the world walking with me. And then he goes and he describes him. He said, he is my light. And he gives us some imagery there. Darkness, darkness creates the unknown. And the unknown creates fear. So why children, maybe some teenagers, maybe a handful of adults, are afraid of the dark. It's why when you go from a building to your car at night, you grip your keys a little bit tighter because you can't see the darkness creates the unknown. I've never understood. This is just a side note. I watch a lot of shows, you know, police shows and things like that. I have never understood why, like when the police go to find the bad guy and he's like in a dark basement or a dark room, why no one turns on the lights. You ever notice that? They've got their like guns with a flashlight. And I'm like, you're just a target at this point because everything's dark. You can't see the bad guy and you're flashing a light around that shows them where you are. And may, I don't know police work. Maybe that's what you're supposed to do. But I'm thinking, turn on the light. Let's even the playing field where we can all see, you know, what's happening. But it creates for us, at least I know this, in the TV producer's perspective, it creates some tension. It creates some fear because it's dark. There's the unknown. When I was a high school kid, moved back to Colleen, and there was this story, and it was before the internet was around to dispel these type things, but everybody talked about this place in Lampasas called the Winterstein Mansion. And everybody talked about going to, that's not it, but that's kind of like what it kind of looked like. And the story of the Winterstein Mansion was this. It was this big home in between two rivers in Lampasas, which if you go look at a map, there's no rivers in Lampasas, but we didn't know that. And there's a railroad track that runs in front of it. And the story is that it was the Winterstein Mansion was an old insane asylum. And that the train would drive up and they would, back in the old days, they would let all, they would get all the mentally ill patients off and they would, they, they would stay in this insane asylum and they couldn't get away. If they tried to escape, there were rivers on both sides and a train track that they couldn't cross. And I don't know what was in the back, but they were there. And that one day, one of the mentally insane people went crazy and killed everyone in the asylum. This is the story. And then a guy named Joseph Winterstein bought the house years after it had been closed down. And he moved his family in. And the, and the legend went that one night in the middle of the night, Joseph Winterstein went crazy and murdered his family and buried them inside a hole, dug out a hole in his kitchen and buried them in, in, below his house and covered it back up. And we were going to go to the Winterstein mansion and see it. We loaded up in the cars. We drove out to land passes. We found this house that only, I, I mean, I don't even know. I think the name was even made up. And we get there, and lo and behold, there's a railroad track out front, and we're like, it's real. And it looks like a creek on either side. And so we're all standing there. Who's going first? And it's dark. And, and, and like, I'm thinking, I, I mean, I was pretty wise at the time. Well, I say pretty wise. You're going, why were you there? Um, <laughs> but I was wise going, I know this is just a story. The biggest thing we should be afraid of is like some homeless guy sleeping in there. That's going to be the real. So I go first. And so we go in, we go in, I go in and everybody kind of follows in and we're like looking around. We got flashlights. We go into the back, like where the kitchen would be. And I kid you not, there's a circle. looks like a well's been dug and it's like covered up. And we're like, that's where they were buried. And like, man, we're getting a little bit like scared and stuff like that. And we go back out, and it's a two-story building. And we're trying to figure out how do you get up to the second story because there's no stairs anywhere. There's a tree, though, out front, and there's a branch, a big, thick branch that goes up to the balcony. And one of my friends, Brandon, climbs a tree, and he gets up onto the second 
story under the balcony. And he's, he's walking, and every, I mean, it's like, if it was a movie, the music would be playing. Like, and we're like, what's up there? And he's like, shine the flashlight up. And so we, have fl- we all turn our flashlights and shine them on these two rooms. And he walks in one, and he goes and he walks in another. And we're like, well, what's up there? And he's like, it's two bathrooms. One's painted all pink and one's painted all blue. And all of a sudden, we were like, this isn't like a haunted house. It's like an old restaurant, you know, like nobody died here. Like and all of a sudden, like everything was off the table because simply the light dispelled the darkness. The light shined up into that place and we went, this isn't what we thought it would be. From the ground in the dark, it's a scary place. When the light hits and you go, hey, it's all painted pink and it's a bathroom and there's stalls where multiple people go to the restroom. This is like an old restaurant. All of a sudden, the light dispelled the darkness and there was no fear anymore. And he comes down and we're like, all right, let's go home and tell all of the 7th, 8th, and ninth graders about Winterstein Mansion. So they'll go one day. But light dispels darkness, and it dispels fear. And David says that Yahweh is my light. He says he's my salvation. I'm going to have to go fast. I'm going to take up all our, our time. This, this week, there was a lady. Her name was Miyuki Harwood. She's 62 years old. This is a picture from a, a news thing. She went hiking and got separated from the rest of her group. Something happened. She fell. She broke a couple of uh, bones, I think, in her legs because she said it took her two days to crawl to a river where she found water. Now, story goes, it just happened this week. She was missing for nine days until rescuers found her because she was by the river where she had a little bit of food. She'd only packed a day's worth of food. She had a water filtration system that she was using to drink river water, and she had a whistle. And as she was blowing the whistle, they came and found her. And we hear stories about this, but I want to ask you this. What were you doing nine days ago? Not this Friday, last Friday. You might have went to a football game, watched high school kids, something like that. Now, I want you to think through everything that happened from two Fridays ago until today. All the places that you slept, maybe it was just your house, but you slept in your bed every one of those nights. The places you ate, the things you did. You went to two football games maybe on Friday nights. You've been to church twice. All during that time, she was laying by a river, sun up, sun down, not knowing if she'd live. That's scary. How do you think she felt? She's blowing that whistle, and a human being, rescue team, came through the trees and found her. That feeling is what David feels when he says, God is my light and my salvation. He's shown up to save the day. My eternity is secure, and what's eternal doesn't fear what's temporary. And salvation is eternal. And then lastly, he says this, God is my stronghold. David at this time is probably hiding in a cave from a mentally ill king named Saul who's coming with all of his armies of one of the greatest countries on the planet at the time to seek out this guy as public enemy number one, And David is huddled up in a cave with a ragtag band of followers and they're scared and they're like this lady in the middle of the wilderness, not knowing if they're going to survive. And David starts singing a song and the song he says, God is my stronghold. I don't know if David wrote this in that midst, but he had that experience of living in a cave, hiding out with nothing to protect him other than no stronghold, no castle, no iron gates, no stone walls, only God. And he says, I don't fear. I'm not afraid because I don't need a physical stronghold because I have a God who is better than that. My light, my salvation, my stronghold. So what we need to do is this. We've got to grow 
so that we know God like David does. We've got to know him as light that dispels darkness in our life. We've got to know him as our salvation. We've got to know him as our stronghold. That doesn't come just from coming on Sunday mornings. It comes from walking daily with Jesus. And so that's the second thing. Last thing, and I'll close with this. We've got to trust Jesus. I said earlier, Satan, he's whispering, spiritual war going on, trying to get you mistrust. Don't tithe. Don't share the gospel. Don't Sabbath. Don't do any of the other things that God calls us to do to grow. At some point, we have to go, you know what? I know truth, the Word of God. I know truth with a capital T, Jesus, if you are a follower. I'm going to start believing the truth that I know because I've read it and because I know because I've experienced it and stop listening to the lies of the devil. At some point, we just have to jump in and start doing what God's called us to do and say, God, I don't know. I am a little bit afraid about my finances. I am a little bit afraid about my job. I am a little bit afraid about leading my kids. But since you're calling me to, I'm going to do it. We've got to just jump in. This summer, <coughs> we took our students out on a party barge. It's kind of a, a, a summer event. And I got two kids. Um, I've got a third grader named Rayleigh, and uh, I took her out there with us. She went to the party barge and uh, had another little friend that was out there. And so we're out. It's a, it's a double-decker party barge. That's actually the exact one we were on. And we're out on Lake Travis, and, and I'm sitting down on the, on the lower deck with some adults. We're talking. Students are all swimming. Rayleigh's got her life jacket on. She's out swimming and stuff like that. And kids start going up to the top, and they're allowed to do this. That you, you, there's a place to jump off, and there's a place to slide off. And so we're sitting there, we're talking, kids are jumping. One of the adults goes, I think Rayleigh just jumped off the top. Now, if you know my daughter like I do, you would have said the same thing I did. Absolutely not. Because she's, I mean, she's not even going to try new foods, let alone jump off the top of a, off of, she she won't go into the deep end hardly. You know, I'm like, there's just no way. She doesn't do the small slides, you know, until this last year at the rec center. And I'm like, come on, look, there's like a baby in diapers, you know, they just, they put that baby like in his holder and just dropped the, you know, the car seat down the slide. And he went, you can do it. And she's like, nope, not me. And so I look over and sure enough, she's jumped. She's swimming, having a good old time. Well, the nine-year-old's going to do it. Dad's got to do it. So I go up and I've, I mean, I jumped off a 10-meter high dive, not because I wanted to, because it was, it was scary. When I, was I mean, I've jumped off big stuff before, but I'm scared of heights. But I'm like, this is just, just a party barge. And the two elementary schoolers did it, and all the teenagers. So I get up, and as I'm there, all the teenagers up there, they're all jumping. Of course, I come up there like, oh, yeah, go. We'll wait for you. And I'm like, no, y'all go ahead. They're like, no, go. I'm like, no. And so we, like, have a standoff. Because I'm like, no, we're kind of with a deck cleared. I don't want anybody around, you know. And the, so finally, I get up, and I get to the edge. And I look down. It's like a 10-foot. I mean, it's nothing. And I'm like, boy, that sure looks way further up here than it does down there. Everybody's like, go. And I'm like, I will. Nine-year-old's like, go, Dad. I'm like, I will. I stood there way longer than I needed to. At some point, in my mind, I, I got jump or go downstairs. Sometimes you, you just have to take the leap and go. And it wasn't as bad as I thought. Same principle faith-wise. Some of these things that God has called us to do that Satan has been whispering fear into our life, you just have to do. You just got to jump. One of those things might be trusting Jesus. I don't give an invitation every time I talk. But my question to you, 
would be this. And I'm going to ask you in the way the old 80s evangelists might have asked. If you died today, what would your eternity be? You, are, you will be eternal. Not like God because you have a beginning. But you will live for eternity in one of two places. Heaven with Jesus or in hell apart from Jesus. Very plain and simple. I'm not saying to scare you. In fact, the scariness of hell is nothing compared to the greatness of Jesus. Not a fear tactic. I would tell you, you want to spend eternity in the presence of God. If you died tonight, would you? If you died this afternoon? Some of you have made a decision not to follow Jesus because you're afraid of what being a disciple, being a follower is going to change in your life. And you know what? It will change things. And it's not always going to be easy. In fact, there's a lot of things that are going to be very hard to follow Jesus. And you're afraid of them, but they're all temporary things. And what's eternal never fears what's temporary. So I'm going to ask you to do a couple things. I'm going to ask everybody just to bow your head for a second. And I'm going to ask two questions. One, if you came in this morning and you don't know that you have a relationship with Jesus and you want to have a relationship with Jesus, I'm going to ask you to pray this. It's not about the words. It's about your heart. But I just want you to say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Jesus, I've disobeyed and broken the, the laws that you have set up. I've offended you. And I know that Jesus is the only way to my salvation. Just pray, Jesus, you died on the cross for me. Perfect and sinless in my place. Say, Jesus, come into my life, forgive me. Change me. Make me a follower of you. Keep your head bowed eyes. I'm not going to ask you to I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to walk up here. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. David, would you put my cell phone number on a thing in a second? My cell phone number will be up on the screen. If you prayed that prayer, I'm just going to ask that you text me. I'm actually leaving town today till Tuesday night. So we'll talk via text or phone. We can get together when I get back about what's next. Just text me and say, hey, I prayed that prayer. Give me your name. I'll have your phone number. And we'll follow up about what comes next. And if you're afraid, you're afraid of being exposed as you've been coming for a while and don't have a relationship with Jesus, let me remind you what's eternal never fears what's temporary. That feeling will go away as you get to know Jesus more and more every day. Now, if you are a believer, I want to ask you this question with your eyes closed so you have no distractions. What would our community look like if the people of God lived with no fear? Picture that in your mind. Meditate on that for a second. What would your neighborhood, the place you work, our schools, our city, our state, look like if the church, the people who are following the eternal God, were not afraid of the temporary? God, may what we meditate on now become reality as we live with the truth that the eternal never fears the temporary. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.